This light a candle meeting takes its name from the proverb, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Through shared experience, strength, and hope, we seek to shine a light through the darkness of our illness onto the spiritual path to recovery. Anyone who is abstinent and working his or her own recovery can do 12 steps within service. No special qualifications are necessary. Only willingness is needed. We can all help carry the message of recovery through abstinence and working the steps by being one, willing to be ourselves, two, giving service, sponsorship, and friendship, three, encouraging membership retention, and four, attending meetings and OA events. On the 12th of every month, OA encourages everyone to support the still suffering compulsive eater within our fellowship. What can I do? Am I, I'm only one person. There are many suggestions and our panel will discuss how they personally do 12 step work, but here are some examples. You can make outreach calls. How about 12 calls by noon? How about using the 12th of every month for reflecting on the strength of your own recovery? Write down 12 actions that will support your recovery and the recovery of others, and then share your list. Offer to drive someone to a meeting when we're back to face-to-face. Reach out to 12 members who no longer attend meetings. Call someone who, whose share caused you concern. Call any sponsee who's struggling with the physical, emotional, or spiritual part of recovery. What support and encouragement can you offer a member who's still struggling in program? Stay tuned and listen to what these three recovered people have to offer. And first up is Terry. Well, hello everyone. Oh, so good to be here today. All my wonderful fellows in OA. I am so happy to be here today. And I would like to first begin uh, this presentation with a special thank you to my two co-panelists today, uh, Melissa and Amy. Um, as most of you know, who happen to know me personally or through, especially through writing, I use the, uh, the symbol of a butterfly all the time to, um, to show how I feel about my freedom from the food obsession that I've had my whole, for 60 years that I have no longer have now after uh, being recovered for over seven years. Um, but I'm gonna let the cat out of the bag and tell you that butterflies are more of a story to me than just recovery. And that's whenever I'm asked to speak in a public formal presentation like this, I get a whole bunch of those little butterflies in my belly. So Melissa and Amy were sweet enough to honor my request to go first. So I didn't have to sit here through their presentation with all those butterflies in my belly. So thank you so much, ladies. And just for everyone out there, I want you to all know that um, I don't mind having the butterflies at all because years ago I had the butter fingers, I had the butter toffee, I had the butter scotch, I had the butter cookies, I had all the buttermilk. No, I'll take the butterflies any time. So thank you ladies again. First, a brief history. I just wanna start off with a very brief history of myself, keep it kind of short because many of you have heard this before, but. I'm sure there's people out there that do not know me at all or haven't heard my story. Um, just briefly, um, as far back as my memory goes, I've been a compulsive overeater, 
back to my toddler days, I was always into things with the food that I shouldn't be into. Um, <clears throat> I, of course, as a child, for, as most of us, sweets was a big problem. But uh, for me, more than just the sweets, rather than attaching myself to any particular food, I was just hooked on food, period. Uh, if I liked it, I just wanted more of it. Uh, my biggest problem was overindulgence and abundance, that, no matter what it was. Um, that was my biggest problem with the food. And I've learned through working the, the, this program that um, it goes beyond the food. I, I basically am addicted to more. If I like it, it doesn't have to be food, I always want more. Okay, um, I come from a wonderful household. My mom and dad loved me to pieces. We came from, we were a typical 50s, 60s family. My dad worked at IBM. He was off to work every day. My mom stayed home and raised my brother and I. My brother's six years older than I am. Um, and she also kept all the finances in the house and kept financial statements and all that work for my grandmother's uh, business. My grandmother also lived with us my whole life uh, until she died at 93. She ran her own clothing, ladies clothing store in New Waltz, and um, we had that in the family. But for the most part, my dad was of German-Russian descent. Mom and my grandmother were Italian descent. So when it came to my food, it was the Italian that ran the show. Um, meals at our house were always insane, insane, especially the holidays. Course after course after course. I can remember uh, cousins and aunts and uncles coming to the house. And um, <clears throat> the adults would sit down at the table at 12 noon. And they wouldn't budge until seven or eight o'clock when it was time to go home. Maybe a potty break in between, but it was just focused on the food and the table. Um, and that's how it was in our house. Even non-holidays, food was never discouraged. 365 days a year. Um, manja, manja, manja. Eat, the, eat, the, eat. The. the more you ate, the better you were. That's, and I thought every household in the universe operated like that. I thought we were perfectly normal. Until um, moving ahead, I was a uh, 17 years old, a junior in high school, and I was up to 180 pounds, just after, just a little under, uh, just around five foot tall, way overweight. Um, <clears throat> that was when I went on my very first diet. My mom, uh, from what I understand, was scrawny as a beanpole until she was 19, but then she gained weight. And I never knew my mother. Um, she died at 95 years old, but I never knew her as being a normal weight or below. My mother, to me, was always overweight. Um, and she decided when I was 17 to go to Weight Watchers, which she did. My father and I both needed to lose some weight. My brother was in the Navy. So she went to Weight Watchers and started cooking sensibly for all of us. And lo and behold, we all lost some weight. I lost 60 pounds in my junior year. And when I back in my senior year, I was a lovely 120 pounds. I looked good. I felt good. I made the cheerleading squad. I had a boyfriend. Life was just delightful. The diet worked until it didn't, until it didn't. 
I got married when I was 21. I had my first child at 23, my second child at 25. And by the time I was 27, I was back up to 180 pounds. So from 17 years old to 27, that whole 10 years between eating crazily, of course, and pre two pregnancies, my weight, that's when it started, started to roller coaster. That first 10 years right there after I went on my first diet. Um, I found the OA rooms for the first time when I was 27. My oldest daughter was getting ready to start school. I did not want her to go to school having the fat mother. So I had seen a little article or something in the paper about um, OA. I said, well, why not? Give it a chance. So I went and uh, I got a sponsor. <clears throat> Excuse me. I called in my food every day. I did all the things I wanted to do. I did not work the steps like I should. And I was there for 18 months. I had lost 80 pounds, so proud of myself again. Um, but again, I didn't realize how temporary that was. I thought I had all the answers and I went for the complete wrong reason. I went so to lose weight. I wanted, my, I wanted my, to look good for myself, of course, and for my more for my children, so they wouldn't be teased in school having the fat mother. And that reason did not bring me any kind of recovery at all, wanting to lose weight. I found my way back into the rooms, well, after I fell out of the rooms, which was only a year and a half after I found them, this was in the late 70s, um, I, I roller coastered for 35, years. Um, I just was never, you never knew where I'd be, size two, size 22, or anywhere in between. My weight fluctuated from 100 pounds to close to 200 pounds to at, at, at any given moment for over 35 years. And in 2012, I found my way back to the rooms again. And that's another whole story in itself that I won't even start to go into. But uh, when I went back the second time, I weighed 120 pounds when I walked back into the rooms. I, I looked good. I felt okay physically, but I knew something was wrong. I wasn't thinking clearly. And I went back the second time to stop eating compulsively. I said, I, I could feel that urge. I had just lost like 60 pounds again. And I felt that urge coming back to eat. And I said, I don't want to do this again. And I went back not to lose weight, but to stop eating like I was eating. So I wouldn't gain it all over again. So the topic of this today is um, how I built my recovery community. I'd like to get into that. Um, well, uh, Lori already touched upon one of the ones I use the most. I use two individual type ways. I have, and I still do. And one is all those telephone calls, all those texts, all those emails. I'm, I do it constantly. I have a huge list of contacts that um, I, I just contact people constantly. Um, the other way that I think is my favorite way is through sponsorship. 
I have been a sponsor for over seven years. I absolutely love it. I wish I could sponsor everybody, but of course I cannot. Um, <clears throat> that just uh, is no way that's going to happen. But um, the personal touch with the sponsees and I just love everything about it. And especially those working the steps, because every time I work the steps with a sponsee, I'm working the steps myself. I find myself doing the steps. And this is what brings me my sanity and my recovery is working the steps every day. So sponsorship is hugely important to me. On a more general public note, um, reaching out to the public, a way that I've always loved is, believe it or not, and I think some of you may be in program for a while may do this or have done it. I still do. I still have a, a pretty good size stack of old Lifeline magazines. If I have a doctor's appointment, I take them to the doctor's office with me. And I will leave one purposely in the office. You never know who is going to come into that doctor's office pick that up, take a look at it and say, oh, I didn't know there was OA. What is Overeaters Anonymous? What is that? Great way to reach out to public who knows nothing about us. And another way that I use, um, have used, not today, but uh, to reach out to the general public is through our Mid-Hudson uh, intergroup. I am on the uh, committee that we call POPI. It stands for um, what is it, uh, professional outreach and public information. There's a small group of us that before COVID-19 put a kibosh on everything, we were going out to places like health fairs and other health venues and handing out pamphlets and literature about OA to the general public, just walking through a line that don't know it, that OA exists or maybe have heard of it and has some skepticism or some questions. And that was another way that I, I use reaching out to the general public. Um, my other way of maybe so not so much the general public, but vastly around OA is meetings. Oh my gosh, do I love my meetings. Love my meetings. They are just so important to me. Um, as many, uh, many of you who know me know back in 2017, that was a horrible year for me. Um, in June, June 17th, my mom passed away. And right behind her on July 19th, excuse me, uh, I lost my dad 32 days behind mom. Um, right after that, uh, September 5th, my dog died. And on September 11th, six days after my dog died, I lost my job. So in a three-month period, I lost both my parents, my dog, and my job. And I was so grateful that I had a program and a fellowship behind me because I never would have got through that. Never. But even with all that behind me, I said, oh, you know, Terry, you're addicted to more. I needed more program. I needed even more for some reason. And uh, I realized here I was in the month of September, October. I said, oh gosh, I hate going out at night to meetings. I hate going out into the cold and the dark of the winter. 
And I got this idea of starting a daytime meeting. And I said, hmm. The only one I could think of was our Saturday morning Cornwall group. That's the only meeting I knew in, in the Mid-Hudson area that was during the day. So I asked a few other people and lo and behold, they had an interest too. Like, yeah, we do a daytime meeting. We would do one. So I just started reaching out to members and um, through that little conversation, found a woman who said, oh my God, Terry, if you want to start the meeting, please, please start it up. She said, and I even have a place where we can hold it. And that's how our Monday midday beacon meeting got started. I had the idea. This woman had the place. We could do it on Mondays at noon. You know, just by reaching out to those of us within the, our community, our fellowship, we started a whole new meet, meeting. Um, now, why do I do these things? Well, I'm going to go physically, emotionally, and spiritually real quick. Uh, Physically, I am 105 pounds lighter than I was right now today than my highest recorded weight. Um, today, I no longer take medication for depression, high blood pressure, cholesterol. I don't suffer with uh, hypoglycemia anymore. Uh, I do it for my physical well-being. Emotionally, I'm not perfect, but I am so much more relaxed and peaceful and serene since I've found recovery. And spiritually, well, I keep spiritually fit to stay physically and emotionally fit. Um, and that's why I do it. That's why I do all of these things. Today, I call, I'm blessed enough to be able to call myself a recovered compulsive overeater. I keep the food down and I work the 12 steps to do this as often, as regularly as I can. Uh, and again, for those of you who know me, I always introduce myself as a very grateful recovered compulsive overeater. Um, and I'm grateful for every day of my life. Even those 10 years that I was yo-yoing, even the 35 years of yo-yo and roller coaster that followed, I am so grateful for those years because that's where I found out that the only ones that can help me with my recovery from compulsive overeating is another compulsive overeater. In those 60 years that I couldn't find any help, I tried everything. I tried everything. And if you don't mind, I'd just like to read a very short story that really kind of pinpoints exactly what I'm talking about here. Some of you, I know at least one or two of you have heard this story, but many of you may not have heard it and I'm going to read it real quick. Um, it's about an alcoholic who falls into a hole. A hopeless alcoholic has fallen into a hole and cannot find his way out. A businessman happened to pass by and he heard the alcoholic calling out for help. The businessman gave him some money and told him to buy himself a ladder but the alcoholic could not find a ladder, so he stayed stuck in the hole. Some say the businessman actually gave the alcoholic a ladder, but he sold it to finance his next spree, just to realize he was still stuck in the hole. Next, the doctor walked by, and the, doctor cry, or the alcoholic cried out, help me, I can't find my way out of this hole. And the doctor said, here, take these pills, they will relieve the pain. The alcoholic said thanks, but when the pills ran out, 
he was still painfully aware that he was stuck in the hole. Next, a renowned psychiatrist stole by, strolled by and heard the alcoholic pleading for help. He stopped and said, how did you get in that hole? Were, were you born there? Were you put there by your parents? Tell me about yourself. It'll alleviate your sense of loneliness. So the alcoholic talked with him for an hour and then the psychiatrist had to leave but said he'd be back next week. And the alcoholic realized he was still stuck in the hole. Next, a priest came by and the alcoholic called out and the priest gave him a Bible and said, I'll pray for you. When he got down on his knees and prayed for the alcoholic and left, the alcoholic was very grateful and thanked the priest for the Bible, which he read, but he was still stuck in the hole. And finally, a recovered alcoholic passed by and heard the poor man's cry for help. Right away, the recovered alcoholic jumped into the hole with him. And the suffering alcoholic said, why did you do that? Now we're both stuck in this godforsaken hole. But the recovered alcoholic said with a gleam in his eye, it's okay, I've been here before, I know the way out. And that's how it was for me. I was stuck in a hole. The priest went by, the doctor went by, the psychiatrist went by, my parents went by, my friends went by, everybody meant well, nobody helped me till I found OA, till I found my friends in these rooms. And that is why I do this today. And in conclusion, I know I'm running short on time. Um, I just would like to quote something by Bill W that touches my heart so close. We alcoholics see that we must hang together else most of us will finally die alone. Let this togetherness begin with me. I don't wanna die alone. And I don't want any other compulsive eater to die alone. On January 14th, 2015, my 40-year-old niece died alone in her apartment in Brooklyn from compulsive overeating. Uh, she had been to visit us for the holidays just before. Um, she, has, she was morbidly obese. Her health was terrible. Um, her teeth were rotting in her mouth and my brother and sister-in-law tried everything to get her. Debbie, please go see a doctor. And she had so little self-esteem and so little love for herself. She wouldn't even go and see a doctor. And two weeks later, uh, my brother couldn't get a hold of her by phone. And he called the New York City police and asked them to check on her. And they found her dead on her kitchen floor. They said she'd probably been there at least a day or two, all alone. Well, they did an autopsy and her blood sugar was absolutely off the charts. She had diabetes, just like her dad, just like my mom, her grandmother. I have the hypoglycemia. She had it all and it killed her at 40. So I reach out to as many as I can. I lost my own precious niece to this disease and I don't wanna see anyone else suffer from this when I know it's not necessary. The solution's here and it's quite simple. I said, I love meetings. I do. I hear in every meeting I attend, 
And if you don't mind me quoting the pre from the preamble, our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behavior, behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. And likewise, at the end of each meeting, I hear the responsibility pledge of OA. And I quote again, always to extend the hand, the hand and heart of OA to all who share my compulsion for this, I am responsible. Indeed, it's my responsibility to extend my hand and heart and to carry the message of OA to all who share my compulsion. I build my recovery community by extending my hand and heart to all who want to take them. So now it's my responsibility and it's also my privilege and my honor to give back to everyone, to all that was so generously given to me. That's why I do it today. So thank you all. And I will pass to my two panelists. Thank you. Thank you so much, Terry. So much appreciated. And our second panelist of the evening is Melissa C. I had to unmute. That always works. I'm Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And um, gosh, thank you so much, Terry. That was really beautiful. Um, yeah, we're here. I'm here because I have a responsibility that um, Overeaters Anonymous saved my life. You know, I um, the story of your niece um, touched my heart deeply because um, you know, I was warned by a doctor. Um, I went to a doctor, my, my blood pressure was dangerously high. And my doctor had said to me, um, you're gonna die. You are never going to beat this thing. I mean, he wanted me to have surgery. Um, and he said to me, you're not gonna make it out of your forties. You have been gaining weight at a, at a rate um, and you keep gaining at this weight, you will not make it out of your 40s. And, um, you know, the sad thing is that hearing that from a doctor, he's not a compulsive overeater. It didn't get me to do anything. In fact, what it did was he gave me a referral to a doctor for weight loss surgery. So that gave me a little comfort. That gave me like this shot in the future. And I tucked it in my pocket. And I went through the drive-thru right before I came home with that horrible news on my throat, you know? Um, so thank you for, for, for really bringing that because that's why I'm here. That's why I, I, um, I'm passionate about this fellowship, about this topic in particular, because without, without you all, I, I think I'd be dead. I'm, I'm pretty certain I'd be dead. Um, so, you know, I, um, I wanna talk about this concept of creating the fellowship you crave. And, um, you know, for those of you that don't know me, I'll just briefly say that um, this disease um, had me from the time I was, I believe, born. I, I was always, like, like Terry had said, wanting more. I never felt satisfaction, um, really from anything, to be honest, but certainly with food. 
right? Certainly with food. And my experience was with food was every time I ate it, my desire for more increased. It was never able to be satiated. Um, in fact, sometimes dieting gave me a little more relief for a moment because, um, because the allergy, for me, I have an allergy, I'm certain of it, would be quieted for a minute. But then my crazy head would lock in on this idea of picking up and, um, and I had no concept of fellowship, you know, so I didn't have a support system in place. Um, I had Weight Watchers leaders that I had to face every week. I had a scale, I had clothes in the closet and none of those were able to give me um, what I needed in order, in order to remain free from eating. So I wanna kind of zone in on um, this concept of creating the fellowship you crave. And just briefly before that, at my top, my disease had me over 300 pounds. That's where it was for me. Um, and, um, and I'm a smart person and I couldn't apply any knowledge to, to lick that problem. Um, and so when I came into this particular room, I want to say this room, because a lot of you were part of this room, it was in Cornwall, um, having come back again, because I had been in many years earlier, I was beaten down. I had no self-esteem. I had, I couldn't even make eye contact. I was just devastated by this disease. And so um, that's not the way I live today at all. I've um, been relieved of over 160 pounds, I believe, because I don't get on this. I really don't get on the scale anymore. Um, and I have freedom from the food and I have freedom, freedom from the scale and I have freedom from diets. I just feel free. Um, and it's, uh, it started with this fellowship, right? So what is fellowship, right? Because we, we kind of tossed that word around. And I went, so for me, when I researched this topic, I, I found online, right, some, some uh, information to help me form a clear definition what it is. And some basic elements to fellowship are, one, common beliefs. So we're here because we have a common belief. Two, common work, right? Working, this program is our common work. Three, common faith a faith in some kind of power, doesn't have to be the same, but something bigger. Four, a common need, right? We come here because I came here out of necessity, not because I just felt like doing something on a Saturday morning, I needed something. Um, five, a common struggle, right? I came in here because I was struggling. Six, other areas in common, including a common purpose. So today, like this is my purpose. This is exactly what I believe I was meant to be doing. I was supposed to be doing this. Um, and I know it because it feels right. It sits comfortable in my soul. It's not difficult. It's, um, that's how I know that it's my purpose. Um, a common conviction, right? Those are principles. So that's, again, putting me back to the steps. Eight, a common hope. Oh, yes, I have a lot of hope, right? We're here because we have hope. I have a limitless supply of hope. Um, and nine, a common mission, right? So that's the 12th step. This is our mission. This is like what 
what we're, you know, told we must do from here on. And so in order to be productive in a fellowship, believers should share in the responsibility of helping others who may lack the essentials of life. And that's it, right? I'm here because there are other people who have not been, um, who have not been given this gift yet, and it's a gift. And, and so that's what I'm here for. Um, I, I love the big book. So most of what I'm going to talk about is going to like, I'm going to reference the big book and then share from there. Um, you know, in the chapter um, to wives um, on page 105, it says we seldom had friends at our homes, never knowing how or when the men of the house would appear. And I was that person. How am I going to show up? Um, we can make few social engagements. We came to live almost alone. And so in this disease, right, we are cut off from others um, as well as, as really from God, right? It's, we are in isolation. Um, the disease lives and thrives in isolation. And we, for me, I ate alone, right? I binged alone. Some of us purged alone. We are not social drinkers and eaters. That's other people. Other people engage in eating as a social activity. It wasn't social for me. For me, eating is the most antisocial activity that I can do. Um, I would eat for me and then I couldn't even hear the conversations that were around me. So I grew up in a um, loving, big family where, yeah, there was food, lots of food around but the other people who were engaging in the food could still hear the conversations around them as they were eating. And for me, I didn't hear anything. It was as soon as I locked in on the food, I really didn't care about anyone else in that room. I mean, I did, but it was sort of far removed and somehow away. And really what I wanted when I was eating was I wanted everybody to go away and leave me with the food. Um, so much so that I would be sitting at the table hoping that whatever was in the left there would quickly get wrapped up and put away so that I could get to it later, right? Um, and so at happy family occasions, I spent my time eating in the bathroom. Like that's what I would do. I would stuff it in my pocket and eat it in the bathroom um, rather than be with the people that I loved. You know, um, I failed to show up for happy occasions um, because I was so full of shame about what the disease had done to me. And like, I even missed a friend's funeral because I was so um, ashamed of my weight gain that I just couldn't face seeing people there. And that is not fellowship, right? That's anything but fellowship. Um, and that's a sad, lonely place to be to feel like you can't show up at a friend's funeral because you're so, for me, I was so obsessed, so self-centered with the size of my body that I couldn't show up in support for people that I loved, right? Um, you know, in Bill's story, it says that um, we commence to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us, which is a wonderful thing to be a part of. The joy of living we really have even under pressure and difficulty. Um, so 
we start to make fast friends and the fellowship grows up among us and it's not forced and it's not fake and it's a feeling of inclusion. I feel a real sense of inclusion. Um, I'm part of something. We're part of something here. If you're here today, you're a part of something. Um, you know, a lot of us have been rejected and hurt and at the outside world, real or imagined, I felt rejected and hurt by it. Um, and I've had conditional relationships or ones where I felt like I had to promote an image of myself. And, but here we create friendships that cultivate sustained joy, even when things are going hard, right? Um, and in fact, I, my, what my experience has been is that my friendships in here have grown out of difficult situations, not despite them. That anytime I've shared a difficulty with somebody, I've drawn, I felt a drawing closer to that person. Um, and not because they were telling me what to do or, or I was like leaning on them too heavily, but because they were reminding me that there's something greater that, that I can be a part of alongside them. And that's what fellowship is, you know? Um, you know, so how do we make fast friendships then? What's the direction? How do I do that? You know? We come together, right? We're told we come together. We come together frequently. We get together at meetings. We call one another on the phone. We email each other. We text each other. Um, you know, and, and really they say our purpose at a meeting is to help the newcomer, right? So our friendships are relationships where we have this shared mission together and it's the mission of saving lives together. And that feels really unifying. Um, you know, in, um, in the book, I'm also given a definition of, of um, fellowship as well. You know, we're normally people who would not mix, it says, but there exists among us a fellowship of friendliness and understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. It's too wonderful, I can't even describe it. We're like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy preferred the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of a ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways, right? So when we get better, we don't disappear, right? That's what would happen. Like you got rescued and you'd hightail it out of here and you'd be done. That's not what we do. You know, but for us, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we've discovered a common solution. So it's our common problem that might initially bind us, but it's our common solution that really solidifies that binding. And, and we can absolutely agree and we join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news that this book carries to those who suffer. So we're given definitions here, friendliness and an understanding. We understand our common problem. We show one another understanding. The fellowship, it says it's too wonderful for words. It sounds almost spiritual, even in itself, this idea, it's, it's higher. It's a greater power than us. It's something that almost defies logic, how we, how we form relationships and friendships. Um, we have a camaraderie, which is defined as a spirit of good friendship and loyalty among members of a group. So we're loyal. We don't abandon each other, 
right? Um, if someone is eating, we're still kind to them, right? It's like we don't turn our back because someone isn't um, meeting with success yet. Um, if someone is struggling, we go to any length to help them. And we remember that people are sick. And so we treat them like an unwell friend. We offer consistent friendship and support for one another, and we're loyal to our principles. That's really what it means to have fellowship. Um, you know, this paragraph talks about friendships that come from being rescued together and that those relationships initially don't endure once the rescuing is done and the celebration is over, but ours continues indefinitely because to remain rescued, in order for me to remain rescued, I have to keep rescuing others. Just like that story that Terry read about the hole, the alcoholic in the hole. If I don't get back in that hole and help other people, I will be back in the hole myself. Of that, I am certain. And I know that every time somebody calls me to ask me for help in any area, it helps me. It always helps me, whether I wind up reflecting on my own stuff or just coming out of my mouth to them is precisely what I'm supposed to be hearing myself. So my, um, my ability to stay safe and protected comes from helping others stay safe and protected as well. You know, at, in, in We Agnostics, it says that when we talk to a new man, we watch his hope rise, right? When we discuss his alcoholic problems and explain our fellowship. But his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God. For every, for we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. So here it says the fellowship gives hope to others and they get hope from learning about the alcoholic problem from those that have this problem, right? So people get hope from seeing other people who have this problem as well. Um, and it lets the fellow know that he's not alone. Like I remember the relief I felt at one of my first meetings when I saw a beautiful woman who had, there was no way that I could believe that she had what I had. And out of her mouth came my story. Out of her mouth, she talked about stealing candy. And I was like, how is it that she knows my story, right? And so that got me like my attention. It got my attention. But, you know, beyond just letting me know that I wasn't alone, there was no lecturing, right? No lecturing, but telling our experience. And by telling our stories, what happened to us, then our recovery gives them hope. Now, the tricky part comes when we happen to talk about God, because the addict wants to skip that part. But we who have recovered know that there's not a spiritual part to this program. This is a spiritual program. The whole program is spiritual. Um, and the fellowship, I think, actually introduces the sponsee to God right? It does the introduction. It, it, it's like the middleman that sets up the meeting between the sufferer and their own higher power. Um, you know, the fellowship welcomes us and what we're being welcomed to 
we're being welcomed to come and meet God, really come and meet your higher power. It's like, come on here. Here is where you're going to get a connection with something greater. Um, you know, and it also talks that faith in some kind of a God was part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. So to me, fellowship is a spiritual, it is spiritual. Um, God and friendship, they're part of our makeup. Fellowship is in community is natural. It's the way God created us as human beings. It's the way we were created. We are social animals, right? We're not cats. I wasn't created as a cat. I'm not a snake. I wasn't meant to be alone, right? Therefore, I know that when I am not in solitude, but when I am in fellowship, that connection, I am living in agreement with exactly the way that I am supposed to live. Um, and then I found my relationship with a higher power through the friendships and fellowships. Um, we do this work with other people. You know, I just want to say that life takes on new meaning. That's what we're told. To watch people recover, to see the help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Um, so fellowship is the bright spot. This is, um, you know, when I just circle back around and there was so much more I want to talk to, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna abbreviate it because I know my, that was 20 minutes. So I'm just gonna try to wrap it up as best I can. Um, you know, when I came in and I was beaten down and I couldn't make eye contact, I would be in a room with a ton of people and I would feel all alone, right? And I tried to eat to, to somehow quiet that feeling of aloneness to fill me up. And anytime I was at a social gathering, I was either concerned with what they were serving, right? Either, why are they serving something I can't eat, right? Because that, when I was dieting, that's what I was thinking. Or why are they serving something and there's not enough for me, right? Is there gonna be enough for me? And I would sit there and revisit in my brain the ways that each person at that event was failing me. In some way, I had, a, I had this list in my brain and it went back to when I was like three. Some, I mean, that's what I held on to. Um, and I don't experience life like that anymore. I just don't. Um, you know, beyond living in a normal sized body, uh, living in a normal brain where I can actually be with people, right? And feel a connection with people. I'm just gonna end with this. Um, it's in the back of, in back of the book. It's one of the stories. It's in Our Southern Friend. And it says there are periods of darkness, right? Because we're not promised perfection, like Terry had shared. We get, sometimes we get months and years where we're like, life is rough. And I have to tell you, I'm walking through one of those periods right now. Things are not easy. Things are not easy. Um, 
for many of us, right? For many of us, but in our Southern friend, it says there's periods of darkness, but the stars are shining no matter how black the night. There are disturbances, but I've learned that if I seek patience and open-mindedness, understanding will come. And with it, direction by the spirit of God. The dawn comes and with it more understanding. The peace that passes understanding and the joy of living that is not disturbed by the wildness of circumstances or people around me. Fears, resentments, pride, worldly desires, worry, and self-pity no longer possess me. Ever increasing are the number of true friends, right? That's all of you, true friends. Ever growing is the capacity for love. Ever widening is the horizon of understanding. And above all else comes a greater thankfulness too and a greater love for our creator in heaven. And thank you that that I will pass. Thank you so much, Melissa. Ah, so good both panelists and our final panelist of the evening and of the year is Amy B. Hi. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Lori. Amy B., very grateful to Recovered Compulsive Overeater here in the Mid-Hudson Valley. Woof, Terry, Melissa, oh my goodness. It is completely an honor and so... Um, just so humbling to sit on a panel with you, to walk through this broad highway with both of you. Thank you so much um, for, for this opportunity to do service. So that's what I'm here to do today. So hi, everybody. It's so wonderful to see you all. Um, and I love this topic of creating the fellowship you crave. And a um, little repetitive, but um, Melissa read what is the first time the word fellowship appears in the first 164 pages, the 164 pages, which is on page 15 in Bill's story when he says, we commence to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part. The joy of living we really have even under pressure and difficulty. And that the joy of living, even under pressure and difficulty. And what I have written in the margin there is, can you imagine your life being a joy, even under pressure and difficulty? Um, what a promise. That's what I have written. What a promise in all caps with an exclamation point, because wow. Um, and that's connected to fellowship, to the first time they say fellowship and fast friends. Um, our lives being a joy. So that's where I want to start with the spirit of joy that comes from being in this fellowship. Um, and then, you know, this, the topic here is creating the fellowship we crave. So some of the ways that, you know, people have talked about growing their fellowship, I'm going to repeat some of them, I'm going to expand on some other stuff mentioned. But really, I think of it as ways that I'm growing my recovery community. Um, the, the, and a community needs all kinds of people. Community needs um, uh, wise people who have been here and seen it all. A community needs fresh perspective. A community needs helpers. A community needs questioners. 
Um, so when I'm thinking about creating a recovery community, there's, it's, it's, there's room for, for everyone, for every type, for people who challenge me, for people who support me, for people who um, uh, make me think um, and, and help me to grow. So that's the first thing that I wanna start on that this is community fellowship is about building a community. Um, so one of the great things, one of the beautiful things about where we are right now amidst a lot of other things is the fact that we can travel to meetings and events anywhere with anyone. So one of my big um, sort of suggestions on, on community is when you hear somebody speaking in a meeting that's speaking to something that you um, resonate with, shoot them a text and say, hey, what meetings do you go to during the week? I would love to hear and then travel to them. And, and that's really, really cool. I've heard people talk about their Zoom frequent flyer miles. It's they're, you know, double points, triple points, inf infinite amount of points. We can go anywhere, anytime. And it's really such a gift. Um, so our community can be global. Um, uh, oh, and when you show up at meetings, and obviously there are going to be exceptions to this. Everybody has um, circumstances. But how lovely it is when your camera's on and we can look at each other because we're not in a room now and we wish we were and there are advantages to that, but there are disadvantages. And it's so nice to just see and connect and say hello. And of course, you know, sometimes you're I'm in the car, I'm at, you know, going somewhere or I really need a meeting. And that's not, I'm not saying it's, you know, just a thing, eye contact connection. When you see somebody nodding, when you're saying something, I, I sometimes I make a note, I'm like, oh, that that person is always nodding the exact same thing that I'm nodding at. I bet we would have a cool conversation. It's just another way to connect. Um, and then share. Share during um, periods at the end where, where there's pitches or shares on topic or, or anything like that. And share in the chat box share your phone number or contact information. And if you're looking to grow your recovery community, you can share that too, um, either during your share or in, your in, your, in the chat box. Hey, new here, looking for fellows. I'm a newcomer. I just moved. I, whatever it is. And um, what's so wonderful about this is that there are always people here who are looking um, for people to reach out for. We, we need each other. So, so, um, it, shout it out, shout it out, make yourself heard um, and and see what happens. It's it's pretty cool. I know that there's a, um, a morning phone meeting. Um, it's, it's OA approved, so I'm gonna mention it, Vision for You, where in the second hour, newcomers to the meeting can introduce themselves. And for anybody who's ever done that knows the amount of phone calls that come afterwards from people who just wanna say welcome is, is beautiful. It's it's a gift. So introduce yourself, share, talk about wanting to build your community, and you'll see people will show up. People will show up if you build it. They will come. Um, and uh, oh, okay. So I know a lot of people are sometimes uncomfortable making outreach calls, especially to someone they haven't spoken with before. Especially when we're new to this. A lot of times at the beginning, I'll speak for myself. Trust was one of my big issues. So even in a room like this, an outreach call, calling a stranger. So here are some things that I feel like um, 
help make that a little easier. To text the person first, schedule a time and maybe even a topic. Hi, um, I'd love to talk. When are you free sometime? I'm doing step two. Do you have a favorite step two podcast? Hi, I um, haven't bought any workbooks yet or daily readers. Do you have any you suggest? I'd love to talk about it. Can I call you tomorrow and you can share some of your favorites? So that way, when you call someone, all you have to do is kind of say like, hi, do you have any thoughts about those readers? And then you can just listen and then you've connected with somebody and it makes it a little easier to, to know that the phone call is expected, to know that there's, um, that you know what you're talking about. You're not gonna have to fumble for a topic or feel uncomfortable. And those are just little little things, little tricks and it's okay. And it gets easier the more that we do it. Um, the other thing, and I just heard this recently, um, the concept of a two and two or a three and three, which is you make a, an appointment with somebody to say, I'll share for two minutes, then you share for two minutes and then we'll say bye quick little four minute phone call or a three and three if it's more time. And again, you know, you're just gonna call and you have two minutes to say like at the end of a meeting or three minutes to say, and then you hear the other person, you say, great to talk to you. And it's, and it's quick and it's done. And maybe that takes a little bit of the pressure off too. And where I heard that by the way, was in one of the several group chat apps situations with which some or several of these meetings have um and sometimes it's just a group chat with other fellows where we share not only ideas for things like a two and two or a three and three but meetings and service opportunities and everything like that which brings me to the next topic that i wanted to talk about which is service as growing your um how to create the fellowship you crave and i just want to read we don't often read the long form of the tools because meetings take time. Um, so I'm gonna read the long form of the tool of service because I think that there, it's relevant here. Carrying the message to the compulsive overeater who still, still suffers is the basic purpose of our fellowship. Therefore, it is the most fundamental form of service. Any form of service, no matter how small, which helps reach a fellow sufferer adds to the quality of our own recovery. Getting to meetings, putting away chairs, when that's putting out literature, again, when that's relevant, talking to newcomers, doing whatever needs to be done in a group or for OA as a whole are ways in which we give back what we have so generously been given. We are encouraged to do what we can when we can. A life of sane and happy usefulness is what we are promised as a result of working the 12 steps. Service helps to fulfill that promise. And again, as OA's responsibility pledge states, always to extend the hand and heart of OA to all who share my compulsion, for this I am responsible. So that's how service is really built into the fellowship. We create the meetings in which we can all show up and reaching out to other compulsive overeaters, whether it's in a chat box or by nodding on screen or by making a text or by just showing up to a meeting, all of those things are service and all of them are um, in service of our growing our recovery community. And to sort of Jenga on top of something that 
Terry talked about earlier about wanting another daytime meeting and, you know, talking with people and having it be created. I, I can think of two examples of that. Somebody who's on this meeting who we were a uh, uh, a practice that had come up, a new 11-step practice that a lot of people are doing. And we started speaking and the person said, gee, it would be great to have a meeting about this. And so we just started one and people came and now it's weekly and it's lovely. And on top of that, I had moved to this area a year ago and I didn't know anyone. And through the meeting and through intergroup and then through saying, hey, I'd love to give service. Would anybody like to do maybe like a special event? I don't know. We could do it. We could plan it. First, it was just one. And then we created for a year. And I ended up getting to be a part of a, a team and a group and invite other people. And I've seen other people who I know and, and work with do similar events in their intergroups or their place. And it's just all of us spreading the message and the fellowship and it just blossoms. So, so if you're looking for a specific kind of meeting, make it, reach out your intergroup, your fellowship, people will help. People love to give service, speak it, speak it into, into existence, pray to God and gather the community um, and beautiful things happen. Um, I want to talk just for a second about the word crave, which, um, you know, the definition that we sort of understand and have come to accept is to long for, to want greatly, to desire eagerly. When we talk about the fellowship we crave, the, the etymology, I love words, I love language, I love this, the, what's in it. Um, communicating. And the etymology of the word crave comes from an old English word, crafian. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it means to ask, implore, demand by right. So the idea of demanding by right, I have a right to, if I'm craving it, to fellowship it's a connection that is a human basic need and right. So the idea of that craving the fellowship being natural and a part of who we are is, um, I, I just liked looking at that word. Um, and when I think about the fellowship in OA, the community in relation to what I crave, to what is a basic right and need, Okay, so here's the thing. I can speak to people. I can walk into a room, I can get along, I can make small talk. It's probably something I learned because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin and I just wanted to be liked. So I learned how to talk, but it's always felt like work to you know, be pleasant and say the right things and whatever. The fellowship here in this community I just show up as me and I tell my truths and some of them scare me and some of them disgust me a little bit. Um, and some of them are, are so big. I, you know, I'm sometimes afraid to hope for them. I have never felt so seen 
or understood as I have amongst this fellowship. I have never been able to show up as myself. And when I connect and talk to people, it's not work and I'm not presenting. And that is what I crave. That is what is by, I feel like is a basic right, is to connect as myself. And that is what I have found here um, through working these steps and through connecting to God. So I opened up with the first place that it says fellowship in the big book. And I'd like to close with the first place where it talks about creating the fellowship we crave, which is actually on page 164, which is the last page of the 116. Well, we can count. Um, so it says, still you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. God will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. The beginning of that paragraph, you might say, I, I don't have the benefit of a." You might say, but I, anything but I don't know how to talk to people, but I'm not good at phone calls, but I don't like going to meetings, but I, my story is different, but I, but I, but I, anything, trust in God, show up, do the steps, the fellowship you crave will follow. And um, the last thing I wanna say about finally being able to be myself and showing up, I feel accepted, I feel understood, I feel forgiven, I feel welcomed and I feel at peace. And that, that's a life beyond my wildest dreams. And it's a result of the fellowship, creating the fellowship that I crave. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do service today. Thank you so much panelists um, for your experience, strength and hope with outreach. I would like to give a special thank you to Amy B for having the idea for this Light a Candle series all the way back in June and sharing that idea with Melissa and I. I, Mitt Hudson, and everybody here are so grateful to you and to all our panelists' message. Please note, this meeting is being recorded and by speaking during this meeting, you are giving permission to have your voice on this recording. There is no sharing at this meeting. Instead, we ask questions of the panelists. Also, please remember that the opinions of the speakers are their own and do not reflect OA as a whole. The meeting is now open for questions. To do so, you may raise your hand or if you do not wish your voice recorded, you may ask a question in chat and uh, to me privately in chat and it will be read by the moderator. That's me. Uh, we are using the chat as the we care list. So please feel free to leave your information there. Also, please state if you're an available sponsor or available for just outreach for those who are looking for sponsors or fellowship. You will also find a 12th step within form from region six with ideas for outreach in the chat box. We're now open for questions. And Gretchen, you're up first. Hi, I'm Gretchen. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I have a question about um, like step 10 when it's when you like do like a quick like inventory and then it says to like go be of service um, or like call someone and like don't talk about anything about you. 
Um, so I was just wondering like who you call. Cause like, I know in the group me, I know you're like build a God squad, but I feel like I'm still sometimes having trouble, like reaching who would I reach out to. And like the people in the group me apps who say like available for experience, strength and hope, like, are they, ex are they expect, are they going to want a call that says like, how are you? So that's my question. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Um, Terry, what do you do? And then we'll go with Melissa. We'll just go in order. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you, Gretchen. Great question. Um, yes, I, I love the, 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 uh, the whole idea of the not focusing on yourself. That to me, when I am having any kind of issues, I need to be out of myself. And I do call other people and just simply ask, hi, how are you doing? And I try very hard to make the conversation about them. And uh, it may have been, I think it may have been a Melissa share, how she said that, um, you know, when we're thinking of other people, we're not thinking of ourselves. We're not focused on, on us. And that my big problem is I am so self-centered. My, my ego is so huge. So when I'm having problems, it's self-centeredness and I need to get out of myself. And when I call someone else or when they call me, I always try to make the conversation more about them. Unless, of course, I'm calling my own sponsor with a personal problem and uh, I'm seeking her help. Um, then, of course, she's going to want to know details about how I need to be helped. But, um, yeah, just in general to feel better. The more I get out of myself, the better I feel. The more I focus on others, do service for others, I'll hang up that phone five or minutes later and feel so much better that I hadn't thought of myself. So thank you. That was a great question. Thanks, Terry. Melissa? Hope that helped. <laughs> Hi, thanks. Thanks for the question, Gretchen. That's a great question. So, um, you know, I think finding first, there's like a couple of parts to what you, what you asked. One is like, how, really, like, how do you find people that you can share your share a 10 step with? And, um, you know, I, I think it's important as you're working the steps, like right from the very beginning to build a community like really it's um i know for myself um when i when i sponsor people and it's a practice i still do the um th at least three phone calls i tell people at least three phone calls a day to someone other than your sponsor um and and it could be like scripted kind of calls like what amy was sort of saying like specifically about a question so that you start building a relationship. Um, and if you practice that consistently, by the time you're on step 10, you have an idea of who you're comfortable with, of who you can start sharing things with. Um, I mean, and that's what, that's what happened for me. And actually one of my like dearest friends in recovery, um, we became friends because I, through service, I was asked to speak at her meeting. She was, she was like, getting speakers for her meeting. I showed up before the meeting. She looked at me and said, I have a 10 step over something. Would you be willing to listen to it right now before the meeting? And I did. And 
lo and behold, what she was sharing was a situation that I was in the midst of walking through myself, like something I was really struggling with. And it was like immediate, I felt like I had this sister who was having this common problem. And just like it says, the like our friendships grow from our common struggle. And then what I was, what I've been taught to do is that um, I bring it to one person, right? One person, not a whole, because what I used to do is I would have a problem and I would tell everybody my problem. And then my problem got huge, right? But, and I was hoping to get relief from the retelling of my problem, but that actually makes it worse. So um, I tell one person and I'm not necessarily going to get like instant relief. That's why I follow it up with then go be helpful. Then go find someone that I can be useful and helpful with because the relief actually from my problem usually comes later as I'm working and getting out of myself and helping other people. Um, thanks. I hope that helps. Thanks, Melissa. Amy? Hey, Gretchen. How are you? I'm uh, glad you showed up. I love your question. I'm going to uh, you know, follow a little bit on some of the things that Melissa said um, and Terry as well. Uh, in terms of a 10-step partner, um, I what worked for me a lot was telling people that I was willing to take a 10th step. So I would call like recovered people that I just felt comfortable with or liked or whatever, you know, like just resonated with or, or they had something I wanted. And I would say, look, if you ever, you know, need to give a 10 step, I would love to be one of the people that you could call. I'm sort of trying to practice that more myself and, and maybe I could call you too. And that is, again, sometimes... Uh, a, a lovely recovery principle that I found is when I need something, I try to put that exact thing out into the world and trust it'll make its way back to me. So if you're looking for a 10 step partner, volunteer to be a 10 step partner and see what happens. That's probably pretty cool. Um, and then the other piece about people you can help. I save the chat in zoom meetings, like pretty much everyone. And then I just save it as like the name of the meeting, the date of it, in my thing. And then if I'm at the end of a 10 step and I need somebody I can call, um, I'll often like, I'll go through, I'll just like highlight stuff or I'll turn it into a note in my phone. If somebody's come and they're new, or if somebody, you know, says they're looking for a sponsor, even if I'm not available as a sponsor, I can check in and say, Hey, did you find a sponsor? I know there's a meeting at X time where a lot of available sponsors are. Here's the link. Like these are all things that can be helpful. And I got to be honest, like when I'm at the end of a 10 step and I felt something like ooky, it really is an emotional palate cleanser to help somebody out in any kind of way. Um, so yeah, so I keep, uh, I keep little notes of, of people who need calls. I keep little notes of like podcasts that I like by step because that's always something that I can do that I feel like is ca literally carrying the message, sending like a great podcast on a step that somebody's on. So those are the kinds of things um, that I do for those. I hope that's helpful. Thank you all. We had somebody else who had their hand up, but um, they put their hand back down. So any other questions about uh, 
for our panelists. 12 Step Within, reaching out, public outreach, private outreach, creating your God squad, anything. Oh, there we go. Annabelle, go right ahead. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much, panel. Everyone was just so inspiring and amazing. My name is Annabelle. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered in Washington. And my question is, um, I uh, just put myself out there as a sponsor and I have two women that called me and um, we're texting and it's like, Wah! so I'm just helping them the way they, that my sponsor has done for me. And I'm already getting resistance. Like, well, do I have to go to a meeting a day? Well, do I have to? And I just want to hear from each of you. I mean, I got to remember, I just share the message. They do what they're going to do. But at the same time, my heart, I just want them to get this so bad. So if, if you guys could touch on that, where, how much do you push? How much do you just let it be? What an awesome question, Terry. Yeah, thank you, Annabelle, my fellow compulsive overeater from across the country. Oh, yes. Um, I can remember my first day of sponsor sponsorship. Oh, my gosh. My first sponsee, it, it turned out to be a complete disaster. Um, and thank God I had a sponsor who, who sat back and explained to me that, Terry, it's not your fault. It's not your fault at all. All you're doing is passing on to her what was so generously given to you. And my sponsor re received it from my grand sponsor and my grand sponsor received it from my great grand sponsor. And that's all we can do is pass on to our sponsees what worked for us. Is it going to work for everyone? Absolutely not. But I know when I get a sponsee that's giving me that resistance that you talk about, um, I ask them to think real hard about what resistance really is. Um, the only time I personally struggle is when I resist something. If I am struggling, I am resisting something that I don't like. So I ask the sponsee to please just, instead of being resistant, be accepting try it. Just try it. You know, somebody might say, I can't make three phone calls a day. I, I, I really doubt that. I really, I think everybody can make three phone calls a day. Uh, if you're resisting it, you know, then you're struggling. Try it. Will it work for you? I don't know. It, it worked for me. I know as my phone, when I first came into this program, weighed 500 pounds. I'd pick up that receiver and my left arm would just about fall over. That phone was so heavy. But as I lost weight, my phone lost weight. The more I did it, the lighter the phone got. And that's all you can do is, to, you know, there are no has tos. There's no, you know, do I have to do this? No, you don't have to. And explain to your sponsee, they don't have to. They have a choice. You know, they, they can try it or not. It's totally up to them. But um, 
And then there'll probably be a point in time where you'll know if it's working or not. And, and God will lead you both from there to see where it's going to go. So I always try and stress the point of struggle comes with resistance. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Melissa? Yeah, I love that, love that question. Um, actually, I would take the person um, right to page 58. Um, in the book, it says, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And so I always, I always, you know, say to the person, like, willing to go to any length. Um, and my, my feeling is, um, I don't ask anybody to do anything that I don't do myself. Like, there's nothing I don't ask. It's exactly what I do is what I ask them to do. And usually when someone asks you to sponsor them, it's because they've decided that they want what you have, right? And so I say, um, I I'm probably a little, Terry's I think nicer than me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not, I don't negotiate. I always say, I'm not negotiating with you. And if somebody is really um, adamant about what they won't do or what's gonna work for them and what's not gonna work for them, I usually let them say, Everything they want is, I don't argue, I'm not arguing either, because I'm not fighting with people. Um, I let them say whatever they want to say, and then usually I get, well, are you going to say anything? Because <laughs> I just get quiet and I just listen. And, I, and I've had to do this a number of times. I say, um, well, actually, it sounds like you know exactly what you need, and it's not what I have to offer, Right. Um, and I'm happy to be a sister in the fellowship with you. No hard feelings. We can be friends and fellows for, for eternity. If I see you at a meeting, I will warmly hug you. I'll greet you. I will answer your phone anytime. I probably can't sponsor you because I only have this thing that worked for me. It worked for me. I don't have another set of directions, right? And if I did that, then I would be, I'd be manipulating. I would be I would be trying, I'd be working on them. And we don't work on them, we work with them. So I always know that it's not going well when I am like angry and resentful at this person. I don't wanna be that way. I wanna, I wanna do it with like love and peace and ease and, um, and it should be easy. And, and I, you know, it's one thing if someone asks you a question like, like how come or why? And I might be able to pull it from the big book. And, and then, but other times, you know, when they're just like negotiating, you know, and also I just want to say, I've had someone say to me more than once say, well, yeah, no, I know that won't work for me. I know myself and I know that whatever it is, whatever it is, I know that that won't work for me because I know myself and that doesn't work for me. And I would say to that person, this is a program of transformation. We actually need to get a new self, right? This is about becoming someone different. Um, so I hope that's helpful. I hope that helps. Thanks, Melissa. Amy? Yeah, Annabelle, great question. And I also, you know, love uh, what, what, what both of uh, the other panelists have said. I got to say, like, I, I, have experienced and I did, you know, I, I am, I am of the, the school that Melissa says, which is, you know, this is what I, this is what I do. You come to me for it. I'm not, 
going to negotiate. I mean, I asked her the question and I follow her blueprint on that. Um, I'll say that I sometimes add something um, in terms of saying, like, if somebody's like, I can't X or I would rather Y or whatever, all of the things like, do, you know, it sounds like you have a great idea, but I also say like, if that will work for you, I'm so happy for you. That's great. You, you, if, if that gets you there, if you don't have to do what I am suggesting you do and you can get recovered anyway, then, uh, more power to what yay you what wonderful go try it but i but again i can't be the one who sponsors you and from the flip side of that and this is from my own experience when i first came in i told my sponsor the first sponsor that i had exactly what i did not want to do and she was like okay she was like that's fine take what you like and leave the rest and i was like oh good she's loving and gentle but inside i was like Grr. like i didn't it wasn't it didn't make me being let do it my way just kept me in my own will and I didn't get anything good from it. And I didn't know why I felt so growly towards this woman who let me do whatever I wanted because that's not what I was there for. That's not what I'm here for. If I'm coming to someone and saying, I'm, you're, I, I, there's something about you that helps me connect. I hear when you talk about the steps, the big book, I hear it. I want to work with you. Then great. We're, then we're walking together. But if you want to walk on a different road, then go with my love and blessing. And call, like Melissa said, call me anytime. Uh, fellowship, sure. Let's show up in meetings together. But what I believe works is um, what I'm going to, what I'm going to do as a sponsor. So um, I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much, Amy. Uh, Suzanne, you have a question. Suzanne M. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, who, it was Terry who had mentioned her 40-year-old niece who uh, died of this disease. And um, so I was wondering uh, what is everybody's thoughts or ideas for family members that you have who you see are sick and suffering. I have a couple family members that I know for years have been in the throes of this disease. And uh, so, you know, the question is, is there something we can do, you know, uh, other than like as recovering addicts to be role models ourselves to kind of like push them in the direction or, you know, what would you advise in those types of situations? Thank you, Suzanne. Terry, would you like to take that? And we'll move right along to then Melissa and Amy. Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Um, wow. I can relate to this one and I can just tell you what has worked for me over the years. Um, you speak of family members. I, I don't do inventory on in my family, but I have a pretty good idea of where they are with their food problems. Um, I, would, I would bet pretty much my last bottom dollar that my husband is one. And I have two daughters and I actually think they are both the same. I have a 14 year old granddaughter who's starting to show symptoms of this. Um, 
She's always e eats sensibly, but just last week, her father was in an accident. Thank God it wasn't too bad. And she came to me after the accident. She said, Grammy, I don't know what happened to me. I went to the refrigerator and I just could not stop eating. I could not stop eating. And this little girl is 14 years old and probably wears a size zero and she could not stop eating. But you know what, uh, Suzanne, for me, I can see the problems that that are there, but I, I don't focus on their prop. All I do is do what I do. I stay recovered and I give them the best example I can. That, that to me is all I can really do for my family members. I know when I mention things to my husband, like, gee, maybe you should, or why don't you, he immediately gets turned off immediately. He doesn't want to hear that. And you know what? Until I was ready to do this myself, I didn't want to hear it from anybody either. The, I don't care if it's your worst enemy or your loving husband. Until that person is ready, nothing you say or nothing you do is, is going to make a difference. So I have just learned to pretty much just keep my mouth shut, tick a lock, and just keep doing what I'm doing. Just keep eating absently, staying spiritually fit, and trusting in God. And you know what? All three, um, all three, the, uh, the family members I've been talking about, my husband and my two daughters, although they don't go to OA meetings, wow, they're all losing weight. They're they're finding something, you know. And my sponsor says all the time. It's because mom and, and wife is setting a good example. But I don't force this program on anyone, even my most loved ones. I do not force it. If they ask me for my opinion or suggest it, I will gladly give it to them. But otherwise, Terry, tick a lock. That's how my family stays safe. So thank you. Thanks, Terry. Melissa? Yeah, hi, thank you. Thanks, Terry. You pretty much nailed that one. I um I think so many of us, right? This is not, this problem is not exclusively mine in my family either. I'm pretty certain I'm seeing it. Um, and it's it's painful, right? Because we want I like I'm seeing now I think I have a sense of what it must have been like to be my parent. <laughs> and want so much to help. But actually, I think um, if, first of all, you have to know if they want, if they want your help, if they want your help and they come to you, that's one thing, right? Then you can, then you can follow the directions right from the chapter working with other and it really lays out what to do, right? Um, although it's best not to work with a family member, it does say that, like it's best to sort of refer them elsewhere. But if they don't want this, if they're not interested, um, it says that your job is to be at the place where you can be of maximum helpfulness, just, just show up. Um, and it also says to um, not show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. So. Sometimes this is hard for me right, to not turn up my nose when I see people eating in ways that I find repulsive today, right? I have to just 
um, smile, right? And, and when people, when you're at occasions and people have their plates piled high, it, I should not make them uncomfortable to be sitting next to me with my comments about what's healthy and what's not healthy. And especially what I found is like um, way before COVID, if I'm at these functions, people would say, um, oh gosh, they look at my plate and they go, you're so good. You're always so good. You're still, I'm being bad. And I really try to seize that as an opportunity to not make this a moral issue. This is not bad versus good. And I also think it's important that if they're still eating, that they should feel as comfortable as they want to be to eat in front of me. And that's hard. Um, but because if I make them uncomfortable, they're not gonna not eat, right? Remember, if they actually suffer from what I'm suffering from, that would be human power. That would be disproval, right? Disproval would be somehow enough to get us to stop eating. And that didn't work for me because I had plenty of that. So I know that's ineffective. And if, if they have this and I make them uncomfortable, what they're gonna do is they're gonna avoid me, right? And how sad would that be if the people that I love, that love me, wanna avoid being with me? Because then I can never be helpful to them, right? So I think as much as possible, you recover, recover, recover. You know, and one of my prayers that I say every morning is like, God, please let me be a beautiful example and not a cautionary tale, right? And that that's how I sort of try to, try to live. Thanks. Hope that helps. Thank you, Melissa. Amy? Thanks. Thank you, Suzanne. Great question. Great question. And, and you know, yes to both what both Terry and Melissa said. Um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's genetics, maybe it's environment, doesn't really matter, but I have parents, I have children, and, I, you know, I see it up and down the generations. Um, I have tried to force my will. Look, it's great. Come to a meeting. Come to a meeting. Come to a meeting. And I learn on page 60 what happens when I force my will, which is I'm always a, almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. So um, I have to recognize that me wanting them to recover is about my will regardless of whether my motives are good. So yes, what other people said about modeling, you know, being modeling, you know, just like recovery or behavior, um, also recognizing what is my business and what's as much as I might want it to is not my business, what I can control and what I can't control. Um, to circle back to something I said earlier on another topic is, let's say I wanted to help my younger children and forcing it a meeting or or dragging them to a meeting or really, you know, talking brightly about OA all the time wasn't doing what I had hoped it might. Um, I, I, in my, where I used to live, there was a bunch of uh, uh, young 20 something people who had a group chat and I sort of heard that they had a group chat and I was like, hey, maybe you guys want to start a meeting. And I was on the intergroup at the time. So I helped them bring a proposal. And not only did they start a, a young person's meeting, people from that have now started other young people's meetings. And now there are young people sponsors. So 
maybe I put something out there that will make its way around to my younger generation. Maybe it'll make its way to your younger generation and something you do will make it to mine in the same way that I am putting out into the world what I hope will come to the people that I love. So um, that's, that's, I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much, Amy. Bonnie G, you have a question for the panel. Actually, my question is for Melissa C, because she's the person that gives lists. <laughs> and I only got part of the, the list of uh, common things that we have in the fellowship. So if you could start from one, I think I got through five and then I kind of skipped and lost a few in between. Absolutely. I'll, I'll um, and now, yeah, well, I was going to say I'll put it in the chat box, but I'm too slow <laughs> to put it in the chat box. Um, so one is a common belief. Two, common work. Three, common faith. Four, common need. Five, common struggle. Six, other areas in common could include a common purpose. So it could be like any kind of thing that you would have in common. Seven, a common conviction. Eight, common hope. And nine, a common mission. And if Amy, if you are typing that, <laughs> I know you did. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I might be the list person. Amy's like the techie guru. Thank yeah. you. I think I heard Amy on dinner together this week. I've just been, I want it. Yeah, I want it back. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful, wonderful workshop. Thank you, Bonnie. Uh, Catherine, do you have a question for the panel? Uh, yes, I do. So um, I'm relatively new and I do have a woman that agreed to be my sponsor. Um, I guess my biggest question is that being new in terms of outreach, um, should I stick to reaching out to people that are already recovered? And if so, do I kind of just um, attend a lot of meetings and then reach out to panelists that I think I relate to? Is that the best way to get started? Thanks, Catherine. Terry. Yeah, I was having a little trouble hearing the actual questions. Um, I think you were asking how to get started on, on reaching out. And uh, you did mention about recovered people. Uh, whenever I speak to any newcomers, um, Catherine, it is my suggestion to hook up as best you can with those who are recovered. And they'll, of course, say, well, how do you know who's recovered? And that's the importance of going to meetings on a regular basis and, and reaching out to, you know, you need to reach out and meet people. And trust me, your, your inner gut, your instinct is going to tell you who the recovered people are. You're going to, you're going to hear, when you hear something that um, resonates with you, that, oh, you know, 
I want that. You know, th that is exactly how I got my sponsor when I came back on round two. They, they say, it, you know, to find a sponsor, look for someone who has what you want. Well, keep yourself, all your senses open. And um, you will know who that recovered person is. You know, I didn't go to my sponsor because she had lost a lot of weight and looked great. Uh, at the time I came back into the, my the rooms, I was having some difficulties with my grown daughters. We were having communication problems. And uh, I, I heard this woman say that she had three daughters, that she had found sanity to live with these three adult daughters. That's, that's the woman for me. That's who, she has what I want. I only have two crazy daughters. She's got three of them. So I want what that woman wants. And uh, I'm still with this woman eight years later. Um, you will know if you keep all your senses open, you're going to have that. That's that gut instinct. That's, that's that internal barometer that, you know, it's going to trigger. And um, I, I say, yes, definitely stick with the recovered people. But it's also nice to share with those who are not recovered yet. Um, share with those like yourself if you're not recovered yet find out that sharing with people that are not recovered when you're not recovered is such a sense of i'm not alone you know i'm not all by myself in this yeah that woman she's got it together she's been in program for 36 years she you know where are the people like me well you know it, it is good to speak with people like yourself too just for that feeling of not being isolated, that you're not alone. So I hope that helps you out. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Terry. Amy, uh, Melissa? Yeah, that's a great, that's great. Um, yeah, so I, I always say like, they're called three recovered or three people who like really have a strong program first, especially if you're new, because you wanna hear, you don't wanna hear a drunk log. It's not helpful if you call someone and they're going to tell you all about the foods that they're still eating and they're going to, you know, kind of um, say, well, but I'm not beating myself up over it today. And, and I'm just, you know, like you want to make sure that you're hearing a clear, strong message in the beginning when you need it. But I also say like right away, start creating like, you know, like, like uh, someone close to where you are in it together so that you can form that fellowship that you're doing this in a sense together and you'll start looking for people who they might not be recovered but they mean business they're like they're really working it hard um what i try to do when i sponsor people is i try to try to hook them up <laughs> with with i give them like a lot of numbers of people um and i also tell anybody that i've worked with like if we've worked together if you've called me if we've like done some kind of recovery work together, I have to be able to share your number. Like, you know, it, we can't, this is not a one way dead end kind of kind of thing. So um, yeah, I would make make calls to people who have what you want and, um, and then make calls to those who are seeking it alongside, so, thanks. Thanks, um, just, what everybody has said has been wonderful. And um, yes, to recover people, especially at the beginning. I also love the fact that this is a little bit of a matter of opinion. So, you know, there's, um, 
sometimes we meet people where they are and um, the, the speaking with people who are more recovered is, in my opinion, um, very important at the beginning. And also, if you're in two days, there's somebody who's in one day. And that's, you have hope to give also. So that's just a little sort of flip side of, of somebody else. And yeah, to have somebody to walk the road with and whatever. And sort of similar to what Melissa said about somebody who's committed and working hard. I also sometimes see people who have, it's like I can see the sunlight trying to break through the drapes. Like I can see the brightness behind the pain. And I just wanna call the person and say, hey, hi, smile, sunshine, like just because I see it. And, and, if, and if I'm at the beginning and I'm not recovered yet, I can at least say like, hey, I saw your sunshine and I just wanted to say, hey, and smiley. Like I love emojis for that kind of stuff too. Like, so I guess it's remembering where um, that, I, that I may have something to offer too. And that gives me hope. Um, but yeah, talk to a lot of recovered people at the beginning. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. We have a question here in chat and it is, what are your thoughts on food plans? Does it have to be specific, remove flour or sugar? So many people in OA work their abstinence differently, do Weight Watchers, et cetera. So I wanted to know your approaches. Uh, Terry? Okay, well, food plans, my food plan is, it's a must, it's an absolute must. That, that, that's the best way to describe it for me. Um, I, I have a food plan. There is no sugar, there is no flour, there, there is no real saturated fats, um, but that's for me and everybody, you know, the question is, should there be no sugar? Should there be no flour? Well, it all depends on the individual. If the individual can handle those foods, then fine, eat them, go ahead. But this is a food plan is a very individual thing, but I, for me, a food plan is a must. Um, each day I have a food plan. It is, you know, other than breathing, connecting with God and going to the bathroom in the morning, those three things I do immediately. Number four is make a food plan. I'm starting my day with a food plan because if I don't, I, I am a compulsive overeater. I cannot leave my food up to whatever, whatever, you know, no. Um, there are most days, most, especially since, you know, COVID and everything, being home more, I pretty much know what all of my food each day is going to be. But there are occasions where, oh, I'm going to my grandson's birthday party on Saturday. So I get up Saturday morning and I don't know what's going to be at that party. But I still have a plan. I still have a food plan. You know, I'm going to have protein, vegetable or fruit. And, you know, if that is my plan and I go to the party and all that's at the party is kitty food and we know what that what that stuff is, it's okay. It's okay. When I go home, I'm not going to die after a two or three hour party without my food. When I go home, I'll eat my protein and my vegetable and my fruit or whatever I put on my food plan for the day. 
I don't always have to know specific foods, but I do have to know specific food groups and what to avoid. So food planning is extremely, you know, the, the saying is, you know, fail to plan, plan to fail. You know, if you don't have a plan every day of what you're going to eat and just leave it up to whatever's available, you're heading for trouble. At least Terry's heading for trouble. I'm not going to say that for everybody, but for me, absolutely. Planning is a must. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Yeah, thanks, Terry. Um, I, I just want to make sure like I got the question right. Was it because I... Um, was it specifically, do you have to not eat certain foods or? Uh, so the question was written at, ask, can you please ask the panel, what are your food thoughts? What are your thoughts on food plans? Does it have to be specific, remove flour or sugar? So many people um, in OA work their abstinence differently. Some do Weight Watchers, et cetera. So I wanted to know their approach. Got it. Thank you. That that helps clarify. So, um, yes, no, I, I'm I'm probably a lot like Terry. It's got to be pretty specific. Um, and um, abstinence, right? The food plan is so that you're abstinent. And abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous is um, abstaining from compulsive food and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a normal or a healthy body weight, right? So um, in order for me to do that, it's gotta be planned. It has to be, sorry, it's getting noisy here. Um, it's um, It's gotta be planned. It has to be, um, and that's what I tell people that I'm working with, like for, for, are there people who can eat intuitively? I know there are, I'm not one of them. So, um, Therefore, I can't work with someone who does it like that. Um, I don't tell someone specifically what foods they have to abstain from, but we work together to identify um, what was problematic for them. And if in doubt, I say like, uh, leave it out for now, work the steps when sanity is returned, maybe you'll be better able to see clearly. Um, yeah, I say, like, if I don't have a food plan, I know for myself, if I don't write it out specifically, um, I'm saying that I can make decisions about what I eat. And what I found out through painful experiences, um, I can't, <laughs> I can't, I need, I need another power greater than myself. And, and what I do in the morning is after I pray and meditate um, and I do some journaling, I write down specifically what I'm going to eat for the day because I need God's intervention. I need a higher powers intervention to help me know what to eat. And if later on in the day, I wanna change it, it's chances are it's not God anymore. Chances are it's my self-will. Chances are it's me poking back in. Now I live in the world of reality. So I have a husband, I have kids who might want to make a change and I have to um I have to sometimes change what I'm going to eat based on other people living peacefully with them as long as I can do it um abstinently and um sorry excuse me I have 10 minutes right 
<laughs> that's one of them coming in. Um, and, um, but I also, I still have to report it to my sponsor for me. So even if I'm like making a change, I just text her. I just need, there cannot be any ambiguity um, and no, um, no secrets around the food. As soon as I'm doing something that's, that's secretive, that's not out there, I'm like opening up a dangerous path. So hope that helps. Thanks, Melissa. Amy, you want yeah, to that, this out? Sure. Um, so I think that there are two sides to, um, or two aspects to creating a food plan and defining abstinence. And the first one is the nutritional needs piece. How much do I need to function physically as a human being? What is the right amount of calories for my body size and activity level? Um, and that's something that, um, you know, a nutritionist or, or some kind of, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a formula. And, and, and again, a nutritionist, how much of that should be protein, how much of that should be vegetables. Those are the kinds of things um, that I can be told in terms of what do I need to be nourished physically. So that's one side of it. And part of the reason for that is that um, if somebody tells me this is the right amount of calories for you to eat, or this is the right amount of protein, or this is the amount of ounces, or however I choose to, to measure and notate that, then um, I don't have to wonder if I've had enough or if I've had too much, I just eat what I'm told to eat. And then if I feel hungry, you know, it, it, out of nowhere, then I know I, I have enough food and whatever it is, maybe I'm thirsty, maybe I'm bored, maybe I'm, you know, bothered, maybe I'm something. Now, if I'm hungry, like for multiple days in a row over and over, I'm gonna tell that to the nutritionist and then, you know, we'll figure out if that prescription needs to change, but it takes the guesswork out. So that's the first perspective on it. And then the other perspective is as an addict. As an addict, what are the things that give me the effect what are the things that create the phenomenon, excuse me, phenomenon of craving? And those things might be ingredients. They might be ingredients like flour and sugar. For me, sugar, white sugar, brown sugar, agave sugar, coconut sugar, any color form for me create an effect. So I have to have that, I need that clean border. Um, sometimes it's behaviors that create an effect, you know, grazing or, or volume creates an effect. And that's the stuff as an addict that when I notice I start getting uh, engaged, I start getting um, real, uh, have re just like having a real strong perspective. I, I, that's an effect. Um, and when it talks about abstinent behaviors, and I know this is a little bit beyond the meal plan, but for me, I have to look at the effect that I might get from um, over-exercising or calculating calories burned or things like that, because that's part of my abstinence as well. Working the math for me, whether it's calories or exercise or calories burns, gives me an effect. 
And so I'm in danger. So that's the kind of thing. And again, when people talk about, you know, we plan, I plan my day at the beginning. Sometimes things change because of circumstance or I go to the refrigerator and it's, it's not there or it's gone bad. And I didn't realize, I just tell my sponsor, I tell my sponsor before I do it because it just keeps me clean. I, you know, nothing, nothing in darkness, no, no reason for shame, no need for apologies and life happens. And uh, I hope that was helpful. Oh, I just want to thank the panelists. This is a wrap to 2020. Light a candle. Thank you, Amy B, for this idea. And Melissa and Terry, you guys are just phenomenal. Uh, thank oh, you when, for hosting, Lori. When will this be posted? Soon. I'm going to hit stop on the